Um, let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we want to begin our evening together by committing ourselves into your hands. We want to thank you uh, that as we come to your word, uh, that it's a place where we find light and life where we meet you, that it's um, a text which has been preserved for us and inscribed for us under your provision on your power and that uh, we still depend on you today for that provision and power to read it right and to hear it and to apply it to our own lives in a way which honors you and that's why we come out to you. It's great to see each other um, but we want to hear your voice and we want to grow in following as you would lead us. We want to be individuals and we want to be a community which does a better job of um, absorbing and um, applying your, your uh, wisdom to our lives and our families and our workplaces. Mm-hmm. And we pray that you would please uh, fulfill that purpose in us this evening as we listen, as we sing, as we pray. Mm-hmm. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, okay, so where are we? So, um, yeah, we're going to um, get right at it here, and I'm going to start with a um, picture. <coughs> this is Vaz. <laughs> Great, you can all go home now. Um, dates from sometime in the first century, and it shows two Greek gods sitting <coughs> on this kind of curious structure in the middle. And by the miracles of technology, I'm able hopefully to identify them here. Okay, so you can see them. And just on their right there, uh, there's a lady approaching with something on her head. Um, it's an offering. She's offering a, an agricultural tool called a lichnon. It's uh, used for winnowing wheat in uh, ancient cultures. And uh, by offering this thing, she's hoping to secure the goodwill of the gods for her farm, for her uh, agricultural uh, year ahead. Good weather, healthy crops, good harvest, that kind. Now, if you could look at this just a little bit closer, and I'm afraid that my, this is the very best image that I could find. But if we could zoom right in here, you'd find that she's doing something slightly peculiar with her left hand here. She's turning her thumb inwards in this strange gesture which in the ancient world was supposed to give prayers magical, coercive power. She thinks not just that by doing this she can uh, kind of ask the gods to bless her. She thinks that she can make them do it. She thinks that she can make the future give her what she wants. And the echo of that expectation is preserved here in this piece of art. Now I'm going to uh, show you a few more interesting echoes from the ancient world here. This next one is an inscription. It records the hopes of a man called Menandros. Um, as he makes offerings to his patron goddess. Um, I don't have a picture of this one, um, but the inscription reads like this. Mistress, Menandros, the son of Demetrios from the Demos of Aegelia, has dedicated this offering to you as a first fruit, redeeming his vow and giving you thanks. Stand by him and protect his wealth. So we get the, the picture here. Menandros is also a farmer, and he's bringing first fruits of his harvest back now um, uh, fulfilling a vow that he made way back when these seeds were first put in the ground. His harvest, I guess, was plentiful. Um, and he knows that it's time to say thank you to his goddess. But the sting is there in the tail, isn't it? Did you catch that? Stand by me and protect my wealth. You see, when the harvest came in, it was him who was obliged to give thanks to the goddess. But now that he's given his thanks, he thinks that the goddess is obliged to him. But the gods didn't always deliver against these expectations, it seems. I'm going to give you an inscription now that comes from a family tomb. Um, have a picture from the same cemetery so you can get an idea of what these ancient inscriptions look like. This isn't the actual one I'm going to read you, but that's the basic shape of the thing. Um, it's uh, an inscription that records the grief of a pair of bereaved parents. It goes like this. The fates have seen the place which is always just, and they fix the end of life as our portion, for they have snatched away the finest bloom of beloved youth. Here may be seen the thankless thank offering of their wretched parents, 
a libation on the tomb for their children who died before their wedding days. First virgin Olympias, then Theseus, and then a third name just took away Amentos. And they lie here as a common family, and the tomb has joined their remains together. Now I wonder whether you caught the kind of tragic snapping point in the religious logic of this couple recorded there on the stone. Like Menandros, this couple had made all the necessary offerings. They loved their children, they prayed that the gods would keep them safe. And the next step in that dance was supposed to be thanks for favours received, right? But that wasn't what happened. And I hope that you can still feel the shattering sorrow of that 20 centuries later. The children all died within a single year. Fate overtook them. The gods were powerless to do anything about it. Past offerings accounted for nothing. Thankless thanks was all that the mother and dad were able to return. Brothers and sisters, welcome to Galatia. These glimpses of real lives, real hopes, real tragedies are glimpses into one of the most important places in the story of the Bible. Galatia in modern-day Turkey was the place where the good news of Jesus first exploded <coughs> outwards from Palestine and Syria into the wider world, into our world. And it provides a setting for one of the most important documents in the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Galatians. This is where we're going to be spending our next two Sunday nights. Now you'll notice that our series is entitled... Bring that anything back up here you can see that it's entitled From Galatia to um, and that pretty much gives you an idea of where we're headed. Tonight is going to be the uh, from Galatia part, primarily. We're just going to be trying to get to know the Galatians, understand where they were um, living, what it felt like to be there. And then next week we'll be focusing kind of more on how to bring all this stuff to the world that we live in. Tonight we're going to be spending, I guess, the, the largest part of our sermon trying to bring this ancient place to life. It's going to be a bit of history channel, if you like that kind of thing. Um, our goal will be to understand the situation on the ground and think how it affects our understanding of just one very short and very important section of Paul's letter uh, to the people who live there. And then next week we'll be taking those lessons and kind of rolling them out across uh, the whole letter as best we're able. So let's open our Bibles now. Um, and I'm going to read you that short and puzzling part of Paul's. It's Galatians 4. Um, you can find this on page 1170, I think, of the Red Bibles. Galatians 4, and I'm just going to read from verses 8 to 11. And uh, it'll be good to just have a Bible in front of you as we go through this. There'll be a few times when I want you to get your nose in this, uh, and a couple of places in Acts as well. Galatians 4, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on them. Okay, so that's our text for this evening. So what do you think? What's going on here? What was happening in Galatia that was making the Christians there want to go back to the slavery that they experienced before Paul met them? What are these weak and miserable forces that he's talking about? What are these special days and months and seasons and years? What could have happened to make Paul think that all the effort that he put into these churches had been wasted? Well, to get the answer to those questions, the thing that we need is background information. Um, it's going to take us a little while to get it, but I think it's going to be worthwhile. So we're going to go off now on this kind of armchair tour of uh, first century Galatia and try, if we, if we can, to see this stuff through the eyes of the people that Paul was writing to. And we're going to do this in three little bites. Um, and again, I've got them kind of highlighted for you here. So first of all, we just want to ask ourselves, how did Paul come to visit these people in the first place? Then we're going to ask ourselves, what did it feel like to actually live there? And then the final one we're going to ask is, what happened after it left? And hopefully with those three pieces of information we'll be set to understand the text that we read together pretty well. So, how did Paul ever come to be there in the first place? Well, in AD 48, somewhere pretty close to that, Acts chapter 13 tells us 
that the church in Antioch in Syria commissioned three blokes, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark, to go off to Galatia and plant churches there. Now, I can show you where that is. So here's the world. Um, that's uh, the Mediterranean. We're zooming in on this area here, which is, we call it Asia Minor, okay? And you can see roughly where we're situated. This is Palestine and Jerusalem and all this kind of stuff down here. So if we get a bit closer, I mentioned that these people were sent from a place called Antioch in Syria, which is inconveniently just the very edge of our map, all right? And they went to Cyprus, crossed the land, and then up here, and they landed on the south coast of Asia Minor. Now, Galatia is this kind of big block here. So you can see they've just kind of <coughs> popped in at the bottom left-hand corner of it. And at this point in the project, John Mark disappears. Um, it seems that he's kind of frightened by uh, the prospect of what's going to happen, and in a minute you'll see why. Um, and basically, um, Paul and Barnabas hike up then into the kind of mountainous interior, and they fetch up in a place here, confusingly also called Antioch. This is Antioch in Pisidia. It's a real shame that all of these ancient despots like Antiochus and Augustus, they just named towns after themselves wherever they went. And so if you say something's in Antioch, it could be like, which one of the 30 Antiochs do you mean anyway? This is another one. <coughs> Talking of despots, Augustus himself built a road through here, via Sebast, which was a trade route going east to west. And this is the reason why Paul and Barnabas fetched up in this place, because it's sitting right on one of the major thoroughfares of the ancient world, bringing trade, but also information and ideas from Greece through to Persia, from Persia back to Greece. Great place to go for evangelism. So Paul and Barnabas fetch up here, and it's exciting and a little bit hot. Um, they get great interest from the local population, but they get also quite a bit of resistance from Jewish locals. Turns out this time uh, in history there were Jews living all over the ancient world, particularly in the major cities. They had their own synagogues and this kind of stuff. This is where Paul and Barnabas tend to start their work, and generally it doesn't go so well. <laughs> um, the Jews don't take kindly to Paul coming along and telling them that this is actually what the Bible wants. Um, so they leave to the Antioch, they move um, They move up the road to an, the next place called Iconium. Again, things there are not so uh, straightforward. And finally, they end up getting off the beaten track and they pop up in a little place down here called Lystra. And then finally, they move across to a, a town called Derby. This is what we call the first missionary journey. Four towns four sets of churches that these uh, guys plant. And it looks like these are the churches that Paul's writing to when he writes the letter to Galatians. Probably he wrote it, maybe within, could have been within 18 months first going there. If that's true, that will make this, this the earliest document that we have in the New Testament. So it's super important for us. So that kind of gives you a bit of an idea of how uh, Paul came to be there. And you might ask, well, if it was going to be so difficult, why did they even bother? But actually, um, our text of Acts hints to us that uh, Paul had been preparing for this and God had been preparing Paul for this for a long time. Uh, you might know that he was born in a place called Tarsus, which is just down in the bottom right-hand corner of this region. And although he, as a young man, moved to Jerusalem and he trained the Pharisee there, after he was converted, he came back here and he could have spent probably 14 years in this part of the world, getting to grips with the languages, getting to grips with the local religious customs, and uh, it's striking that this is the first place that they decide to go. You know, this is no fly-by-night kind of evangelistic raid on Galatia. Uh, this is something that has been, uh, the ground has been well laid. What was it like then to actually live there? What did it feel like to be someone who was in Galatia at this time? Well, actually, we're quite well positioned to know. Because the world hasn't seen a cultural melting pot like Galatia, really, uh, since then, until the kind of cities that we live in today. I sit in my office down in the centre of town, and I, as I try to concentrate on my work, I can hear people yammering away outside the window, and it must be eight or ten different languages a morning that I hear going um, I saw some stats saying that at the university, we currently have registered for graduates and undergraduates people from 170 different nations. Here in East Oxford, we have most of those nations represented in the form of restaurants, don't we? Um, you know, it's, it's one of the great privileges of living in a multicultural world, and that's what Galatia was like. 
and kind of to an extreme degree. Galatia had been invaded from the east so many times by the Persians and the Syrians. They'd been invaded from the west so many times by the Greeks and the Romans that by the time we get to the days of the New Testament, it's really hard to say who the locals actually are anymore. Um, it actually has the name Galatia because sometime about three centuries before the birth of Jesus, it was invaded by um, tribes coming from modern-day France, believe it or not. So they really had like the full gamut of different cultural influences. And you can really see that in their religious life. Um, they call this the land of a thousand gods. The people who lived there believed it was possible to have all kinds of interesting, intimate interactions with the divine world, for good and for bad. You might remember in Acts 14, when it describes the third of those four towns that I put on the map. This is Lystra, you might want to turn to this. We get an interesting little insight into what this is like. So Acts 14, again in your Bibles, this is page 1109. And again, I'll start reading verse 8. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He'd been that way from birth and he never walked. He listened as Paul was speaking. And Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, Stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Laconian language, this is a language that Paul himself understands. The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths and city gates, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Isn't that an interesting little portrait of the ancient world? We don't really see anything else like that in the Bible up to this point. It's a good indication of the, the closeness, the kind of visceral nearness that these people uh, thought that the spiritual world was with respect to them. Every home we can see from archaeological remains had its own private altar. The head of the household was expected to present offerings there every day uh, for the safety and uh, the prosperity of his family. Every major landmark in life, birth, adolescence, marriage, childbirth, death, these were all marked by distinctive ceremonies. Every year the cycles of the seasons were celebrated with religious festivals and every person was on the hook to participate because if the whole community didn't kind of club together and look after this relationship that they had with the gods and the goddesses, the expectation was that the hammer would fall. That's actually what's happening in that little sketch with Paul and Barnabas staring at the people weren't trying to make sacrifices to them as the beginning of some kind of street party and ecstatic celebration of the arrival of the gods. It's much more likely that they were actually making a desperate act to placate them because they were angry. And this opens our eyes to probably the most important fact about living in this place and at this time. Despite the huge variety of different gods that they believed in, the huge variety of different ways that people worshipped them, the people of Galatia were united in this conviction that if they could just find the right way to please the gods, the gods would think twice about sending calamity and drop their thunderbolts elsewhere. So if you made offerings last year and your harvester worked out well, well, good. Make the same offerings this year as well because you've clearly found the right formula to please the gods. Humans responded to divine blessings with religious rituals, and then the gods responded to uh, rituals with more blessings. And around and around and around, they thought it went. Managing the risks of the future by keeping the gods sweet in the present. And it's only very occasionally that the cracks in that facade are allowed to show. You see, when punishments fell on people who were done all the right stuff in the ancient world, the trick was to just persuade yourself that maybe you'd omitted to worship one of the many gods who might actually be piqued by the fact that you left them out. And that was quite easy to do if there were a thousand different ones to choose from, right? And people in Galatia also had this kind of safety net for their convictions in the form of fate. Um, the idea was that there were some things that would just happen that were kind of bound to happen that the gods couldn't do anything to stop. It's only in instances like that tomb inscription that I read for you when you see actually what this cruel and pitiful system is actually like for people always asking for more devotion, more effort, but never offering the least crumb of assurance. For people living in our world, I hope maybe that sounds a little bit familiar. But let's not go there quite yet. 
Because now we've almost got enough information to return to our passage and try and make some sense of it. The last piece of the puzzle we need is just that third thing, what happened after Paul left. You see, after Paul left Galatia, something changed to make him write the letter that he wrote and that we have in our Bibles. Some new guys arrived and their influence on the churches there wasn't entirely helpful, uh, to say the least, if you read Paul's text later on, you'll see that he's completely tearing his hair out about these people. Who were they? Well, that's an interesting question. You see, if the Galatians were going back to the kind of lives that they lived before, and that's what Paul told us in the passage we read, isn't it? You would expect these new teachers would be figures from their past. After this extraordinary, very un-Galatian gospel of Jesus blew through, we'd be expecting some kind of counter-reformation. We'd be expecting the priests of Zeus, like the guy in Lystra, or maybe priests of other local gods to be fighting back. We'd be expecting lunchtime talks at the Iconium Centre for Pagan Apologetics, or whatever for We'd be expecting a major effort to cleanse the minds of these poor, deluded Christians from all of this nonsense that Paul had taught them. But that's not what's happening. You see, the new guys on the scene in Galatia are actually Christians. They're Jewish Christians. They probably come from Jerusalem itself, possibly swept up in the excitement of all the stuff that Paul had been doing and hoping to put a kind of Jewish spin on this amazing gospel. These Jewish Christian teachers wanted Paul's Galatian converts to keep the Jewish law as well as believing in Jesus. They wanted them to celebrate the Sabbath, the Passover, they wanted them to get circumcised and what wasn't there to like about that? You know, after all, Paul himself practiced Christianity with a Jewish spin when he was in Jerusalem, didn't he? And aren't we all supposed to be enjoying continuity with Judaism now? In fact, if you look back in Galatians, at Galatians 3, verse 29, you'll find Paul actually says it. He says, if we belong to Christ, then we are Abraham's seed. We are Abraham's descendants. All of these wonderful Old Testament promises belong to Christians now, don't they? So why shouldn't the Galatians embrace that whole history with all of its rich symbolism as their own? But despite the fact that this Jewish Christian influence here sounds like good news, Paul seems to think it's really bad news. And armed with all the background information that we've got now, I think we're ready, finally, to see why. Look down with me then at our Bible passage again. In chapter 4, verse 8, Paul says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God. That's a reference See the Galatians' religious past, isn't it? They were enslaved to the gods of Galatian culture, desperately striving to please them, desperately trying to dodge the thunderbolts that they were wont, wont to hurl. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, says Paul, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Somehow Paul sees this new initiative to bring the Galatians under the Jewish law as an invitation to go back to the patterns of their old religious life. Now, why is that? Well, Paul spent 14 years learning this culture, and he knew that these guys were hardwired to see religious rituals as ways to control the future. I doubt very much indeed that the Jewish Christians who'd arrived in Galatia intended their message to be taken this way. For them, the Jewish law was probably a way to respond to God's kindness, for the most part. It was a way to say, thanks. It was a way to say, count us in. But to the Galatian Christians, who had this great big vacuum now, where all of their religious rituals used to be, it had a very different kind of appeal. Finally, you can imagine them telling, uh, saying, someone's telling us what we have to do now to keep our new God sweet. And that's the underlying problem here in this text. Jewish law in Galatians wasn't a problem so much because it was Jewish, it was a problem. It wasn't a problem because the Jews were inherently legalistic, probably. It was a problem because whatever function it served for the Jews, for the Galatians, it was just a new set of clothes to drape over the mannequin of their religious past. You're observing special days and months and seasons and years, says Paul, probably the high and holy days of the Jewish calendar. And yet he fears for them that he's wasting his acts on them because their motives are all wrong. This new set of diary dates wasn't being driven by celebration and thankfulness for God's 
undeserved kindness like it was for Jews. It was being driven by a desire to put God under obligation to make him bless them like every other religious festival they'd ever known. Paul warns his readers in this letter in the most strident terms against circumcision, and yet he himself circumcises his friend and trusted fellow missionary Timothy just a few months later. Is he completely out of his mind? Is he inconsistent? Is he incoherent? No. He just knows that if the Galatians get circumcised, they will bring it back to God for the rest of their lives as the sacrifice they made that should make God stand up and listen to their requests for the future. Paul is writing to people like Menandros, remember? People who thought their fulfilment of their vows obliged the gods to stand by them and protect their wealth. That has nothing to do with Christianity, nothing to do with Judaism either. But the Jewish law could easily be read that way by someone who had always read religion that way. The issue in Galatia was not whether Jewish law was right or wrong per se. It was about who it was preached to. In Jerusalem, by and large, people knew their Old Testament. They knew God didn't choose the Jews because they were more numerous than the other nations, but just because he loved them. Remember that great text from Deuteronomy 7. It was an alien idea to them to think that keeping the law could persuade God to bless people. But in Galatia, it was different. In Galatia, the law reawakened patterns from people's non-Christian past, patterns from the culture around them. These guys had been drinking in the idea that the gods could be persuaded to bless them for their whole lives. And Paul knew that it was spiritual poison. So let's take stock here. That's pretty much as far as I want to get with Galatians this evening. And next week, as I said, we're going to take this understanding and see uh, what it has to tell us about the rest of the letter um, and about the world that we live in here in Oxford. But for the remainder of our time tonight, I want to just consider the importance of this insight that the Galatians' response to the teachers who were influencing them was affected by their background and just see how that might apply to us today. Think again with me about this woman with the litter under the mess at the start. Now, I've totally omitted to show you all sorts of fun things I had here. This is Sydney and Antioch. That would have been great. This is all the stuff that Mr. Polybarnus probably would have walked up that street. Um, but this is where we're going back to. Here's our lady again. What was she doing? She was bringing offerings to her gods because she thought that by doing so, she could make the future give her what she wanted. It all seems terribly naive now, doesn't it? Terribly primitive. That's the kind of thing you expect to hear about on time team. Oh, goodness, we live in such a better world now. But tell me, how different is it when I lay down my annual subscription on the counter at my local gym? How different is it when I pour out the libation of my efforts on my latest academic paper? How different is it when I spend another evening finessing my Facebook profile or when I deposit the latest installment of cash in my pension fund? Don't I also think that by doing these things I'm obtaining control over the future? Am I not also attempting to make that secret gesture that obliges life to give me what I think I deserve? Isn't our whole culture, in fact, completely and attractively obsessed with achieving exactly what the Galatians were trying to achieve? Are we not equally adept at avoiding the terrible realisation that none of it has the power to give us what we want? If Facebook doesn't give me the popularity I thought it guaranteed, I don't suddenly have an existential crisis about whether my devotion to it or anything else is actually worth it. No, I just make up a new god, Instagram. <laughs> if my latest blockbuster purchase doesn't quite deliver that sense of inner satisfaction that I felt sure it would, the next one surely will. But isn't that just Galatian polytheism by another name? And if it is, the warning of this passage is clear and pressing, isn't it? What parts of my walk with God are really just new sets of clothes that I am draping over the mannequin of my religious past and the norms of my culture? Dan preached four fantastic sermons about God's character for us after Christmas. You might remember, God is great, so we don't have to be in control. God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. And in the hands of someone deeply and profoundly persuaded about the grace of God, that's all good, right? 
like the law was good for the Jews. But by when we come from the background we come from, when we live in the culture that we live in, was it only me who thought, if only I master these four points, if only I commit them to memory, God will, God must free me from the apathy and the sense of distance from him that played me. God beckons our hearts to long for him, but our hearts respond with a tick list of spiritual experiences that we think that will stop him ever leaving us if we can just kind of name them as our own. God urges us to entrust the future into his hands, knowing that he sees further than we see and he knows more than we know. We respond by carefully assembling five-year plans that take all the unknowns out of the equation and then labeling anything that doesn't go according to plan of a waste of time. God has liberated us from slavery for freedom, but we respond by chaining ourselves up with assumptions that God doesn't assume and inevitabilities that are completely uninhabitable in God's eyes. Just like the Galatians, our lives are connected by elastic to the culture that we come from. When we hear the gospel, we have to ask ourselves then if we're responding well or if we're just instantaneously reinterpreting it according to habitual modes of thought that have nothing to do with the gospel. It's a scary idea, isn't it? And we're going to take some time to flesh that out in much more detail next week. But as we close, I just want to offer a suggestion and also a caution about how we might ingest some of these thoughts that come from Paul's letters to the Galatians. It's warning us that our backgrounds and our cultural surroundings can have a huge impact on the way we respond to what God wants to say to us. The things we hear can trigger those old synapses in us. The things that we say can trigger those old synapses in other people. What can we do about this? How can we help each other navigate these kinds of pressures? Well, we have some fantastic things going on at MRC, I think, that can help us with this that can help us kind of get to grips and understand uh, our culture and its assumptions. Real life is a great example of that, isn't it? Helping us engage intelligently and critically with the messages that come at us through the films we watch and kind of disentangle them where we need to from our Christian convictions. But I wonder how well prepared we are to help each other avoid sliding back into the grip of non-Christian assumptions that surround us. I wonder how well we actually know the vulnerabilities that are peculiar to people that we know are sitting in the seats around us. I wonder how well we can moderate our words and actions in order to avoid leading other believers into places where they're vulnerable and where there are dangers. Do we take time to hear one another's stories? I remember when Ruth and I first moved to the States, one of the most important things, I think, in terms of us feeling planted and well supported in the church that we went to, was we attended a house church and the group decided to take just two or three weeks for every couple in the room and every individual just to have 20 or 30 minutes just to tell their story and to say where they'd come from. And it was incredibly uh, fruitful in helping us really know where people were coming from, both to celebrate the joys that they'd had, but also to be aware of where the weaknesses might lie and to be able to navigate those sensitively. Do we listen to each other like that? In our home groups in Connect, are we sufficiently open with one another that as brothers and sisters we can be sensitive to the areas where faith in Jesus is just getting instantaneously kind of reinterpreted as this kind of mirror image of what passes the normal around us? Paul was good at this, remember. He spent 14 years in Asia Minor. He knew these people. He knew how to encourage them without leaving them into danger. Do we have that same understanding of each other? But I think Paul would also want us just to pause here and be careful what we do, even with that insight. Because if your heart is anything like mine, you might be tempted to read even this as a way to take control of your spiritual progress. If we can just master Paul's technique, if we can just listen to other people like Paul did, then we'll have the keys to spiritual acceptance and endurance. That comes so easily, right? And it's all wrong. Look down with me at the section of Paul's text that immediately precedes the passage that I read for us, starting out chapter 4, verse 3. When we were under age, we were in slavery under the basic spiritual principles of the world. But when the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, 
but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Thinking that we can control the future by our own efforts is the rotten core of the slavery that he's talking about here. And that applies to controlling it by mastering new spiritual insights, just as much as it applies to controlling it by buying new things or maintaining a healthy bank balance or whatever else it might be. The gospel is utterly antithetical to that kind of logic. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under exactly these kinds of burdens, to redeem us from them. And the fruit of his work on our behalf is adoption. As sons and daughters, we don't have to take the future into our hands because we're loved by a father who holds the future in his hands and who is utterly worthy of our trust. The mark of authentic sonship and daughterhood here in Galatians is coming to a place where we can lay down that burden of seeking to control the future at his feet, knowing that it's a burden he alone can bear. There's no need for us to invest our time and effort trying to dodge the thunderbolts that the future may bring. There was never any point in that anyway. Jesus was hit by the thunderbolt that really matters, the thunderbolt that we actually deserve. And now whatever future God chooses for us, we can rest completely confident in the loving purposes that stand behind it. Whatever he brings, whether we would choose it or not, it will be the tool that he has chosen to form his image in us. We don't pray our prayers to seek to obey, or seek to obey in an effort to bind God to stand by us and protect our wealth anymore. We cry out, Abba Father, knowing that our lives are safe in his hands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for uh, this amazing letter. We want to thank you for what it reveals about the pastoral wisdom of the man who wrote it. Thank you, Lord God, that you put such a high priority on people knowing other people. Paul spent a lot of time understanding what made these folk tick. He spoke their language. He knew what their religious background looked like. And he was able to find a way to speak of you that protected them from some of that kind of sucking magnetism of what they were before. Lord God, we also come from a world with a whole lot of magnetism. Lord, our backgrounds are still kind of grabbing and sniping at us, making us think things about you which you don't want us to think, or making us believe things about you which aren't true. Help us, Lord God, not just to claim that amazing truth of being saved by grace. We pray that we might live by it. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we might live free with our eyes up on you, trusting that you have the future in your hands, allowing you to bring what you think is wise, accepting that we are creatures, not the creator. We know, Lord God, that there's true freedom in that, as we understand that what you have in mind for us is all good, that you want for us to be more and more like Christ. We pray that you'd help us to entrust ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now I wonder whether it might be good just to spend a couple of minutes doing some Q&A um, because I realise that's probably quite a lot of stuff and probably a bit unfamiliar in some ways. Um, uh, if anyone's got any questions they want to ask just about the kind of the general direction that I took it in, what we think about the text itself, questions about the background, um, I'd love to, uh, to take some of those briefly and then we'll hand it back over to Matthew. So any Question. So you said that shortly after writing the letter, Paul baptised Timothy. Mm-hmm. So why did he do that? Good question. So, um, uh, like circumcised Timothy. Circumcised yeah. Timothy, that's right. Um, so uh, Timothy, although Paul meets Timothy, um, we the the context for it um, is that that circumcision happens just at the beginning of the second missionary journey and they meet in this southern Asia Minor region. We find out that Timothy is someone who has a Jewish mum and a Greek father. Now we don't know enough about the context to know exactly what's going on, but it sounds like there's an important kind of cultural reason why Timothy needs to be clear about his Jewish kind of creds in order to do ministry with Paul as he's going forward. And Paul, it feels like it, Paul takes a 
Um, I hesitate to say pragmatic because that's a very loaded term, but a pragmatic view of what the right thing is to do here. What's going to be the most, uh, the least detrimental in terms of Timothy's usefulness as a mission partner as they go forward together, and that's the call that he makes. Now, I think even just that idea has to make us think really carefully about what's going on in Galatians. Because it's really easy to read what Paul writes about circumcision here as a kind of theological imperative, circumcision bad, mm -hmm. uncircumcision good. Mm -hmm. But that can't be what's actually going on given that state of affairs. And so it makes you ask, why would it be good in certain circumstances and not good in others? And I think the, the kind of line of logic that I've taken this along hopefully helps us see why that might be true. Um, I think Paul is actually really quite relaxed about, and we see this in Romans and in Corinthians, about the way in which our Christian faith manifests itself in terms of external practice. There are certain basics, you know, um, uh, the Lord's Supper, baptism, things where he's going to be really insistent. But there are other areas where he's really fluid and flexible. Um, but the thing which he's absolutely insistent on is that we must do things which cause other people to stumble, and that we must do things which cause ourselves to stumble. And this is a classic case of it here in Galatia. So you can imagine, imagine a missionary situation today. My parents-in-law were missionaries in Madagascar for nearly 25 years. And um, they invested their lives and efforts in the culture of this little kind of rural area. And there were certain things that they learned about that place um, which just, it was a fruit of a long work to understand. You know, there are certain things, you know, like, it's really bad form in a Madagascar household to actually finish your meal. Because if you finish everything on your plate, it's, it's tantamount to saying you didn't give it enough. Um, there are certain things about alcohol in that culture which are really tricky and difficult to work out, and they're connected with people's religious past. Now, you can imagine 20 years into their missionary service there, some kind of enthusiastic Western or Korean missionaries or someone kind of show up, well-funded, absolutely with their hearts for the gospel, theologically really on the same page as my parents and more, and yet can make a horrible, horrible mess of it by just diving in and assuming, like, okay, this is great, you guys come, come around, let's have a chat about the gospel over a bottle of wine. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, you could be way back in their religious past without even realising what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's happening here. You've got enthusiasm. I mean, there, there are clearly more problems than this. There are the poor language about the people who were working in Galatia strident. But I think mainly what's going on is just frustration that they're completely unaware of the impact of their words and actions in the local country itself. Um, it's, a, it's a real call for us to contextualise it. Yeah. You said a word about this word principles. Mm. So, principles, so principles, we can, we can often, um, yeah, it's not sort of high principles. I don't think that's high No, that's not what it means. So, if you can explore it a little more, there's a sense of Um, so, uh, those of you who are really observant will have noticed when I read Galatians 4 3, um, in your Bibles it translates so also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Now, as I read it, I read the basic spiritual principles. Um, now, this is indicative of the fact that there's, there's a problem here with the, with the underlying word stoichere that Josh drew attention to. The word in Greek appears seven times in the New Testament, four times in the work of Paul, and um, there's been a lot of debate about what this word actually means. Um, so um, the reason that I adopted that change is that this is you're going to get an interesting insight into the life of a doctoral student here. Actually, for the last four months, I've been working on that particular word. And, um, I, okay. um, and, um, I've got to give a paper in Cambridge on this particular issue and um, so the, the, the issue with it is over the last 30 or 40 years and this dominates the translation that haven't come to us the idea has been that this must mean 
um, elements, as in um, uh, the, the four basic elements of the ancient world, earth, air, fire, and water. And then people look at that and they think, how could that possibly apply to someone like Galatians? Like Paul isn't talking about physics, he's talking about religion. And so they assume that it then must mean spiritual forces, kind of, you know, spirits of the elements who are somehow underneath or somewhere which people are worshipping. And the problem is there just isn't any evidence for that in the first century. Um, you don't see people bowing down and worshipping the air or earth and fire. I could talk a bit more about this if you want to, but I could talk a lot about this. Um, the thing which is really interesting is that when you get back and you actually read some of the underlying Greek texts, in my actual real joy, over the last um, months to get into, so to look at every citation of this word in the first century BC and the first century AD, it's about 400 um, instances. And what you find is that when this thing is being used in the context of physics, and medicine, it always means earth, air, fire, and water. It's kind of what you would expect. But when it's not, it tends just to mean basic components of stuff. Um, it's a utility word. And um, uh, so maybe it might be a bit like saying, you know, um, if you took the word ingredients, if you consulted recipe books alone, you would find that it means uh, ingredients um, that you can eat. Okay? But if I said to you, what are the successful, what are the ingredients of the iPhone recipe that made it such a success? Okay, now I'm not talking about flour and eggs, and, you know, I'm talking about basic components of stuff, right? It's, that, it's got that kind of flexibility to it. So it's no surprise when you see it in the physics textbook that it means earth, air, and water, because physics is about earth, air, and water. But as soon as you see it in another place, it can mean musical notes, it can mean letters of the alphabet, basic notes of stuff. Actually, it's fun, I noticed on one of Sam's Lego kits that in Greek still, stoikeia is the name for a Lego brick, basic component of stuff. Here in this context, I think what Paul means almost certainly is he means basic components of people's religious mindset. So the first time that it appears in 4.3, he's talking about um, his own Jewish background, basic components of how that used to work, and then when it appears again in 4.9, I think he's applying it into a pagan context basic components of the kind of religious framework uh, that these people were tied into. And he's saying Christianity is a total step change away from both of those things. It's a move into a different world. Sorry, that probably gave everybody way, way more than they wanted to from you. But I think, just to follow up for a moment, sense in your exposition you say the principle is one of future trouble. Mm-hmm. You can reserve the sovereignty or control, manage the future mm-hmm. in some way. And um, as, I mean, that goes to a person's opinion to God as well as Although I don't quite agree with your analysis of it. Because okay. I don't think that's true of Judaism necessarily. Okay. So and Paul applies the word to both. So I think he literally just means basic components of how people think in the religious world. And on the pagan side of it, it's got a particular character. And on the Jewish side, it's got quite a different character. Both of them are very different from Christianity, but neither, you don't have to make them the same. And, and one of the real problems with the way that Galatians is handled is trying to force paganism and Judaism to be the same. And they're just not. Um, that's part of the issue. Um, uh, that's the reason why Paul can behave like a Jew in, Jew in, in Jerusalem, and it'll be fine. And then he can totally chew out people who are behaving like Jews in Galatia, and that'd be fine as well. And people look at that and they just say, he's a moron, he's inconsistent, he's incoherent. And I just don't believe it. I think he's absolutely really pastorally sensitive. So, great questions. Any other? Yes. Uh, I have a question more about applications mm. that, that you mentioned uh, at the end, because uh, if I hear it correctly, it's you never know. You know, you, you can affect someone by what you're saying without recognizing it because it's sweet based, you know, I mean, it's sweet based on the experiences mm-hmm. and stuff, how they look at things. And then, then I guess the question is there's a real danger, even if I'm aware of that, I still don't have knowledge about what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. It's going to affect them in a bad way, in the right way, which a logical response to would be. Either like agree to have a continuous discussion, but since I don't have control over it, mm. uh, doesn't mean I don't say anything. Yeah, because that becomes a real sort of tension. That's there. a great question. So, so how do you? I mean, what how do you navigate that? that? 
That's a great question. I think that just as a general kind of ethical principle, I think the Bible is trying to say to us, God doesn't hold us to account for things that we can't know. Um, so, um, inevitably, as we go through this life, um, we will find ourselves insensitively, or maybe not even insensitively, just saying things at some points which will hurt people without us knowing it. It happened, just as a personal example, someone stood up at Maudlin Road just over a month ago and gave a really brilliant kind of introduction to a project that they were doing church planting in Northern England. And they had no idea, so for Ruth and I, we were involved in a situation where we were terribly hurt in a church planting situation where our flesh was crawling, we didn't want to be in the room. Those people had no idea that that was happening, and they weren't accountable for that in any way. Um, we all need to be accountable for our own responses to things. And partly, you know, who's Paul writing this answer to? He's writing it to the Galatians. He's not writing it to these people. I'm sure that he would have wanted to have words with them. But he calls them foolish. He says, look, there are things that you need to do. And so I think we all need to take ownership of the fact that the way that we respond to things is our responsibility before God. And so I think the primary takeaway of this, and I tried to kind of steer our applications of it this way, um, is being alert to the fact that our own hearts do this. Now, it then makes good sense for us to then confess that and share that with other people, doesn't it? You know, if you all know that I struggle with X or with Y, that will help us then as a community. And if I know that you struggle with X or with Y, that will help us as a community to love and look after one another well. Unless we disclose that, you know, no one will ever know. Um, but I, I don't think it's just the responsibility on the speaker, because you can't always know. Now, Dan and I had some really good conversations about this, about what does this mean for church leadership? Because in a mixed community, there are people of every possible different sorts of background. Mm. And something which you might deliberately target not to activate dangerous things from the past of X might actually specifically activate things, dangerous things in the past of Y. And you're like, what do we do or no? But I think in that kind of situation, the answer is openness. Is it just to say, so the per- part of the purpose of this series is just to say, this is an issue. This is an issue. We all have pasts. We all have ways that we react to the culture around us. We all have points where our Christian fabric is just a little bit thin, and if you poke too hard, you're going to break through into something bad and nasty. Um, and if we are at least able to talk to one another about that kind of stuff, we've got a much better chance of navigating it than if we're all just basically assuming that you know none of us have these vulnerabilities. Uh, but there, there isn't any possible way that you can take it on yourself and say, I will never hurt anybody else. You know, um, if, if that was our way of engaging with my followers, we'd just say a metaphor. And then we probably hurt some people from our medical <laughs> <from our laughs> position. Well, I guess it helps if we're not too sensitive. We don't things too personally. Yeah. Yeah. That's really important. Because yeah. it is easy, isn't it, to be um, in that place of like, oh, I can't believe that person said that thing that was terribly hurtful to me. Yeah. Rather than thinking to ourselves, um, how I do That's probably enough. I don't want to keep us too long, um, but great questions. And there's more of this coming uh, next week. Um, the idea will then be to kind of be much more focused on application and bring it much more to our own world. We spent a lot of time in the first century tonight, so thank you for your indulgence. Um, hopefully, we'll get a little bit more kind of bedded in next time. <laughs>